Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll read chapter 10, verses 1 through verse 13, and we'll be looking at roughly verses 1 through 8 this morning. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for all Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding, the ability by your Spirit to hear, receive, believe, and do what your Word calls us to here in this passage. We ask for your own glory, and in the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. So this morning, obviously, we turn back to Paul's letter to the Romans, where we left off some weeks ago, and you'll recall that we completed chapter 9. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul picked up a question that many of his listeners would have uh, thought or asked, and that was, well, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then what happened? Why did Israel as a whole reject the Messiah? And so he asked the question there in chapter 9 and verse 6, well, has the Word of God taken no effect? Did the Word of God fail, the gospel of God? Did it fail? Did God fail? And he points out there in chapter 9 and verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so you'll recall we looked at that chapter where Paul begins to talk about there this thing called election, that God was operating on the principle of election, that the promises of God through the gospel and the coming Messiah were made to the elect of God. And so he worked faith in them. And so God's plan went accordingly, just as He had determined before even the foundation of the world. And then He also, in that same chapter, talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the plan of salvation and the church and kingdom of God. And as we consider Romans 9 through 11, these three chapters, we need to understand that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the so-called problem of Jewish unbelief and the inclusion of the Gentiles by faith in Jesus. And so in Romans 9, he emphasizes God's purposes according to election. And in chapter 10, he focuses on 
the human factors that contributed to Israel's unbelief as a whole. Of course, there were the disciples of Christ who trusted in Him, but as a major part of Israel, they did reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we think about chapters 9 and 10, we need to understand and remember at all times that two doctrines are true, two truths are valid, and that is, well, on the one hand, you have election and the sovereignty of God, uh, that's chapter 9, but also in chapter 10, you have man's responsibility. So both are equally true, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so as we look at verses 1 through 8 this morning, what we'll see is really a case study in Israel's failure, Israel's failure to believe and to receive the gospel of Christ, their failure to embrace the Lord Jesus as he was offered to them in his gospel. And so their failure then resulted in their failure to be justified by God. Remember, a quick definition of justification is to be treated by God as you had never sinned, to be fully forgiven of your sins, and to stand before God. So before we dive in, just look at verse 1 there at Paul's heart and his desire. We need not to skip this. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, or for Israel, is that they may be saved. This takes us back to chapter 9, where he says that he had great sorrow, verse 2 of chapter 9, and continual grief in his heart for Israel, his ethnic brethren. And so here we are reminded that even though we legitimately believe in that doctrine we call predestination and election and the sovereignty of God, that should not preclude us from praying for lost men and wanting other men and women and children to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. So let us not look over that as we continue through this letter of the Apostle Paul. And so then, what contributed to Israel's unbelief in the Lord Jesus? That's the question at hand here, really. And there are four things we'll consider this morning. First of all, the the Apostle here tells us that they had an inadequate zeal for God. They had a zeal for God. Remember, he's already covered this in chapter 2, that Israel had all the oracles of God, they had circumcision, they had the worship of God, and so they were zealous, he says. If you look there at verse 2, for I bear them witness. He's honest. He admits that they, the Israelites, have a zeal for God. That word zeal, zealous is the word from which we get zealot. And it's used several places in the New Testament, even to describe the unbelieving Israelites in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. It says this, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And so zeal there is a burning. It's an indignation, an anger. And uh, they had it towards the disciples The unbelieving Israelites had it toward the disciples of Christ. In Philippians 3, 6, Paul there is talking about himself before he was a Christian. Remember, he was a Pharisee, a supreme Pharisee, the Pharisee of 
Pharisees, and he asked the question, well, does anyone have confidence in the flesh? He's saying, basically, um, that would be me. If anyone did have confidence in the flesh, that was me. And he says, I the more so concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And so in his zeal as an unbelieving Israelite and Pharisee, he himself, he found himself rounding up Christians in order to put them in prison to get rid of the first century church. In Acts 13.45, Paul and Barnabas were preaching there and teaching, and it says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, with zeal, and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And so as James Boyce wrote, he said this, even the zealous must be saved. All of Paul's zeal himself could could not save him. It's because his zeal at that time kept him from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, their zeal, these Israelites' zeal, Paul notes, it missed the mark. In verse 2, he said, they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. It was an ignorant zeal. And so we're reminded here that sincerity is not the test for something that is valid. I mean, we have to do the right thing, the right way, for the right reason. That is true. But they must all come together. You can be zealous on your way to hell, as was the case with the Israelites here. And so they had an inadequate zeal for God. Second, we see here that they did not submit to God's plan of salvation. That's in verses 3 and 4. If you look there at verse 3, he says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Another way to put it is to say that they did not submit to God's plan of salvation. Um, He says they did not submit to the righteousness of God. What does he mean by that? What is this righteousness of God? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that this is the righteousness of God. It is from God. It comes from God, not from man. And remember, Paul opens this letter talking about it, this righteousness in chapter 1 and verse 17. He says, for in it, that is the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this righteousness of God is revealed, it's manifested in the gospel of Christ. In chapter 3, he talks about it again, and we call this an alien righteousness, because it's foreign to us. It doesn't come from within us. It's not something that humans work out themselves. No, it comes from God. In Romans 3 and verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And so remember, we talked about this. It's the righteousness of Christ that he's talking about. It's the alien righteousness 
of Christ Jesus that we receive when we repent and put our faith in Him, in the gospel of Christ. And so that's what he's talking about. And these Israelites, about whom he speaks here, they did not submit to it. That means they rejected the gospel, and therefore they rejected Christ himself. That's what he's talking about. Now, why is it that they did not submit to it? Well, he indicates that there in verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. And he says they sought to establish, to put into force their own righteousness. They resisted the righteousness of God. They resisted the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And we see that on the pages of the Gospels, don't we? Where Christ himself is going out, he's preaching, he's teaching. And uh, there are those who follow him, the crowds follow him, he's healing people, he's feeding them, and some are even following his message, Uh, but at the end of the Gospels, they all reject him. And even his 12 disciples are nowhere to be found, but but by God's grace, he pursues them after the resurrection and, and saves them. But the leaders eventually convince the people to reject the Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself. In Matthew 12, it says that the Pharisees plotted against him how they might destroy him. In Matthew 21, Jesus told the parable of the the, um, vine dressers. And there is the the one that they sought to kill. And so they were um, symbolized in that parable, the Israelites. And it says there that they sought to lay hands on Jesus. They feared the multitudes, though, because the people took him for a prophet. And so we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, 27, chapter 27, and they release a criminal, they release Barabbas, they keep Jesus, and the crowds, they they shout, crucify him. And so as a whole, the Jewish people, they rejected the Lord Jesus, they had him crucified at wicked hands. Even after his resurrection and ascension, we read in the book of Acts that this resistance continued. We see the apostles Uh, leading and spreading the gospel, and we see that they would be arrested, the disciples, the apostles, some of them, and persecuted. Why? Because the Israelites were not submitting to the righteousness of God. Then you notice there in verse 4, Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he says, for, he's giving explanation here He's telling us why it is that this is a bad thing, that they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. He says, for Christ is the end of the law. And I've got to confess to you, I spent a long time trying to figure this out. What he, I thought I knew exactly, precisely what this means when it says, for Christ is the end of the law. I don't mean, don't mean to scare you, um, but uh, at the same time, Uh, there are basically three interpretations or understandings as to what Paul means here when he says, for Christ is the end of the law. We need to understand what he means here. So there are three interpretations. The first, I'm going to give them to you, the first understanding of what he means is that Christ is the goal or the aim of the law. 
In other words, the law points to Jesus so that we will receive Christ and His righteousness. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You know, he gives that picture there of the tutor, the schoolmaster who is responsible, that servant in the house who is responsible of taking the child to school, dropping him or her off, and uh, probably him in those days. But point is, um, the tutor takes the, the person to school and drops him or her off. And so the law holds us by the hand, it kind of beats us up a little bit or a lot, convicts us of our sins, and puts our hand into the hand of Christ so that we see our sin and we see our unrighteousness, our need to be forgiven, and our need to have the righteousness of Christ. And so the law in that sense leads us to Christ. And so Christ is the goal or the aim of the law. And Hodge, the old commentator, said this, the Jews erred in seeking justification from the law because the law was designed not to afford justification, but to lead them to Christ in order that they might be justified. And so that's the first understanding. And that is true, by the way, that Christ is the goal or aim of the law in that sense. But also there's another understanding as to what Paul means here. When he says Christ is the end of the law, the second thing is that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, Jesus perfectly fulfilled and obeyed the law of God. All of its types, its ceremonies, and the specific commands. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets, but rather to fulfill. He came to keep it intact, to obey it. Why? Well, he came to do that on our behalf. He came to do it, as 1 Peter 1 says, that he might be, verse 18, the lamb without spot or blemish, that Jesus would be the perfect and sinless sacrifice. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so there is that gift that we receive of the righteousness of Christ, credited to our account, we, we turn to Jesus. And the law was unto that end, that Jesus might obey it in our place, just as He suffered and died in our place. We talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ on our behalf. But there's another, a third understanding here as we're talking about what He means when He says Christ is the end of the law. And that is that the word end means end. Makes sense. Um, or termination. But we have to be careful if that's what we're going to say. It would mean that Christ is the end of the law as the means for justification. Now, as I say that, let me say just as quickly that the law is not given at Sinai to be a means of justification or works. That was given in the context of grace. There's the preface to the law. God saved them out of Egypt, the house of bondage, in order to show them how to live. And so, that's true. The law is not given as a means of salvation or justification. Uh, nor does it mean, if we were to take this view, that the end of the law means its termination, 
nor would it mean that we believe or affirm something that is called antinomianism, against God's law, that once Christ came, He just kind of pushed the law aside, and we are no longer bound to keep the moral law of God. Well, Paul's already talked about that in Romans 8. We are all obligated to keep the moral law of God. So, what would Paul mean if he meant that it was the end or terminus of the law of God when Christ came? It would mean that Paul has in mind that Christ has freed Christians from the law's bondage. In other words, he's already said something like this in Romans chapter 7. In uh, chapter 7, I think it's verse 4, he says there, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Also in verse 6, he says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so, I think that's what he's saying here when he says Christ is the end of the law. Why do I say that? Because of the context, he's making this contrast, as we'll see as we work through it. There's this contrast of justification by works or justification by faith. And the Israelites, of course... Um, they were self-righteous. They thought that they would earn justification and salvation by their own works. And if you look at verse 4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law, and there's a clause there, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so here's what I can say about verse 4. Since the fall... God has never given a law or a command to be performed by sinful men in order for them to be saved. The Old Testament law was given in part to drive men out of themselves and in order for them to flee to Jesus for salvation. And so Jesus, after His resurrection... In Luke 24, he's on the road to Emmaus. He's with the disciples. They're struggling. And uh, Jesus, he opens up the Old Testament. Remember, it says in Luke 24, 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so I believe that to the enlightened mind, it couldn't be more clear that Jesus is the end of the law. As Jeremiah 23 says there, God promised that a righteous branch of David would come, a king would come, and he would have a name. His name would be the Lord our what? Righteousness. So Christ himself would come and bring the righteousness that we forfeited in the fall with Adam. So they had an inadequate zeal for God. They did not submit to the righteousness or the salvation of God. Third, there's another failure here, and that is their method of justification 
was impossible. Their method of justification was impossible. If you look there at verse 5, it says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. Let me just pause there and say, men are in, in the writings and so forth, they've questioned, well, is Paul actually quoting the Old Testament here? I don't think he's quoting. I don't think his intent is to quote verbatim the Old Testament because he doesn't say, what does Scripture say? Or if you look down at verse 11, he says, for the Scriptures, or the Scripture says, it's not a direct quote, what he's doing here. But if you look back at verse 5, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Take what Paul is doing here. You have to understand he's dealing with the self-righteousness and the unbelief of the Israelites, his ethnic brethren. And in their minds, just as it was in his mind before he came to Christ, he had a zeal for God. He sought to earn a righteousness on his own before God. That was the mindset. Work salvation, not grace. Justification by works, not justification by grace through faith in Jesus. And so he's dealing with that, and he's showing them that if you're going to be saved by the law, here it is. Verse 5, the man who does these things shall live by them. And so if you want to be saved by the law, that's it. And he's quoting here, he's alluding to Leviticus 18 and verse 5. Now that phrase as it is written there, the man who does those things shall live by them. That is sprinkled throughout the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament, for instance, in Nehemiah chapter 9. It says there, they were recounting uh, the history of their spiritual forefathers and how they disobeyed God. God sent them into exile. God was merciful, brought them back in, all this. And well, in Nehemiah 9, 29, it says, and God testified against them, that you, God, might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. And so they didn't live by them. It's quoted in Ezekiel chapter 20 a few times there, but also in the New Testament, in Galatians 3. Again, Paul in Galatians is dealing with the same problem. It's the Judaizer problem that said, well, yeah, Christ, it's, it's a little bit different, but in essence the same. Christ, you need Him, yeah, but you also need to keep the law. If, if you want to be a true person of Israel and the people of God, you need Jesus, but you also need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised and all these things. So Paul is dealing with that. In Galatians 3, in verse 12, he says, yet the law is not a faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So what does the Bible mean here? The man who does them shall live by them. When Paul's using it there, and I think here, he's talking about the law as a means of salvation, a principle of law. By the way, Jesus uses this used it in his evangelism. Remember the rich young ruler? 
Matthew 19, um, he says, hey, good teacher. Jesus says, why do you call me good? You know, because um, no man is good. Jesus was good. He's the God man, and he's good. But the point is, this man is assuming that other men are good. Why do you call me good? And he says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus mentions the commandments, the moral law. He says, oh, great, I've done all these things from my youth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And that young ruler went away very sorrowful because he had great wealth, great possessions. Was Jesus saying, if you want to inherit eternal life, do something? Sell everything? Maybe become a monk today, who knows? That wasn't Jesus' point. His point was, look at your heart. You see, that man coveted wealth and money. And so there is that do this and live principle as if it were possible. I think that's what um, Paul is getting at here, just as Jesus did elsewhere. And so Paul will go on to say in Romans in chapter 7 and verse 10, what the law did to him. In chapter 7 and verse 10, remember, it says in the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. It killed him. Thankfully, it killed him. Because elsewhere he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, Paul died in that sense. The law killed him. So what's the point of the law? Well, we talk about three uses of the law, and one of them is found in Romans 3.20. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's one main reason why God gave the law. To expose our sin. We should never think of the law of God, the commandments of God, or any part of Scripture, God's revelation, as a ladder that connects earth and heaven. That if you simply do them, you will enter into heaven. No. We need to think of the law of God especially as a spiritual MRI for our hearts. It exposes what's in our hearts. It exposes our sin. And so what's Paul doing? He's contrasting the Jews' way of salvation with God's way of salvation. You can see that there in verses 5 and 6. You know, elsewhere Paul talks about this in Philippians 20, Philippians 3 rather. I'll just read it to you. Philippians chapter 3 He says in verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision. That's Jew and Gentile believer, by the way. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. 
Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul says outwardly, that's what he means, outwardly concerning his obedience to the law, he was blameless. But... What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And the Israelites failed to arrive at that point, just as did the Apostle Paul. And so it was impossible for them to be saved, to be justified by the works of the law. And so they failed. And, uh, oh, you know, it might be possible to obey some of their laws... What, what the Pharisees and scribes did, they lowered the standard. They, lowered, they added all these laws to God's law, and they lowered the standard so it was easier to, quote, obey God. People do that today, right? You know, maybe you've heard that phrase found in the church sometimes, don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or go with girls who do. You do that, you'll be fine. Maybe don't play cards. Don't, don't go to this movie or that. Don't do this. Do that. Don't let your hair touch your collar. Whatever it is. If you do all that, you're fine. Well, no. Because Jesus comes on the scene and he says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. And the Pharisees and the scribes are like, Right, right, right. I've never done those things. And Jesus says, But I say unto you, If you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you hate your brother without cause in your heart, you've already committed murder. Therefore, you're guilty. We're all guilty before God. And the Israelites did not want to admit this. And so that was a grave failure on their part. They were ignorant of this righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They refuse to accept it, as Paul points out here. And when you think about it, if you're trying to earn your salvation, you're in competition with Jesus. Do you really want to compete with the sinless Son of God? Because He came not only to die for us, not only to pay our penalty, to wipe away our guilt and our shame forever, but He also came to live for us, to earn that righteousness necessary before God to stand before Him, to be clothed in His righteousness. Do you want to compete with Jesus' keeping of the law? Or do you want to submit to the righteousness of God that He gives to you, His righteousness in the gospel of God? That was the issue. And that's why the Pharisees and the scribes hate him. And that's why all self-righteous men don't like Jesus. But it's impossible to earn your salvation by the deeds of the law. No flesh shall be justified. And so that's why one man says we see here the irrelevance of their legalism. Well, last and quickly, uh, we see the the last thing here, the, the fourth failure on the part of Israel They failed to acknowledge God's method of justification. So they had a zeal, 
Uh, they didn't submit to the righteousness of God, all these things. Uh, their way of salvation and justification was impossible. But here we see they failed to acknowledge God's method of justification, getting right with God. Well, that's in verses 6 through 8. And um, if you look there at verse 6, uh, the New King James says righteousness of faith. It says, but the righteousness of faith, you may have the New American Standard. I think it says the righteousness based on faith. That's a terrible translation uh, because we do not receive the righteousness of God based on our faith. Our faith is not the grounds of our justification. It is the instrument of our justification. Remember, we're but beggars before God. Have mercy on me, the sinner. We hold out our hands and receive the gift of righteousness by faith in Jesus. And so it's talking about the righteousness of faith, the righteousness that comes by means of faith in Christ. And so then he alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 10 through 14. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And uh, what's he talking about? Well, if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 3, or 30, and you read some of the literature, I, I think what he is saying, what he's doing, is he's referring to Deuteronomy 30. And if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 30, that terminology that he refers to here was a way back then in the Old Testament that God's people would refer to something that was impossible. I mean, do you have, can you fly to heaven? Can you go down to the abyss and come back? It's just a way to say it's impossible. And so, when you think about that, what Paul is saying here is one of two things. He could be saying that the gospel does not require such impossibilities, that is to fly into heaven or to dive into the depths and return. Or he is saying, do not say that no one can ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss and from there return. In other words, don't say it ain't so. Christ did return from the abyss. Christ did ascend into heaven. Believe the gospel. And so, God's method of justification is possible. In fact, Christ has accomplished it. And it takes a true miracle to believe it. That's at the heart of the problem. It's the Israelites' hearts. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. It takes the new birth to believe in the gospel of Christ, to be given a new heart before one can have faith. And that faith will be manifested, as we'll go on to see a little later, through a confession of one's sin and a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says there in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, the gospel which we preach. It is there. It is before you. It is obtainable. That's the message. And so as we think about these 
four things, these failures of Israel. Let me make four quick applications this morning. First of all, at the same time, we must affirm the biblical doctrine of predestination and election and have a love for the lost. We must affirm the doctrine of election and predestination and at the same time have a love for the lost. Paul says, after after writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, the chapter on election, chapter 9 of Romans, he says in verse 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Does our belief in God's sovereignty prevent our prayer for our neighbors, our loved ones, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If it does, we don't understand the sovereignty of God. That God chooses to use means. And one of the means He uses to save men is prayer. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, how would be, be thy name? These things cannot happen unless God acts, sovereignly so. And yet we are told, commanded to use prayer. We see Paul's heart for the lost here. It is inconsistent with biblical teaching for a Christian to become cold, callous, or careless towards his or her unbelieving neighbors, friends, and family. Second, your best is never good enough. Maybe some here today, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you've relied on the fact that you're a church member. You've been baptized in the name of the triune God. You worship God. You check off these boxes every week or, or you do this or you do that. But you can never be good enough. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. In my family, there's this, this joke about brownie points. You know, you do this for your aunt, you're going to get a brownie point. Well, there are no brownie points with God. No. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark, children. Have you ever played darts? Be careful if you do. Um, Bow and arrow? You have the bullseye. And so the aim, the goal, is to hit it right in the center of that circle, right in the center of the target. If you do, that's perfection. And that's what God requires for you to stand before Him, perfection and holiness and life. But we've all sinned. We've missed the mark. We've either fallen a foot under it or it's fallen to the floor. But here comes Christ, and He's the perfect marksman. Through His life, He obeyed perfectly the law of God, kept His commandments, and He earned our salvation for us. Even the Pharisees tithed a tenth of mint and cumin. Ladies, do you tithe your mint and cumin? You're not as good as the Pharisees, theoretically. Well, third, for an application here, we see that ignorance of the unadulterated gospel is deadly. Ignorance of the unadulterated gospel is deadly. They had a zeal without knowledge. Paul will go on to talk about the preaching of the gospel. We'll look at that next time, Lord willing. Well, then last, as far as application, this is the big picture here. What's the message of the Bible? 
children, if somebody asked you, what is, what is the Bible about? What would you say? I'll tell you what it's about. It's about Jesus, right? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Remember in John 5, he's, he talked, Jesus was talking to all these, these Bible teachers. They were self-righteous. They, were, they weren't trusting in God's grace. They were trusting in their own works. And, and he said, you study the Scriptures. Why? He says, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which testify of me. So the point is, when we read our Bibles, let us not fail to see the big picture. Yes, the Bible, it does give us commands. God does demand holiness from us as His children. In some points, the Bible is very difficult. But at the same time, the overarching message of the Bible is simple. Your first parents sinned. You sinned with them. You deserve God's wrath and curse. But I'm going to send Jesus. And He's going to pay the penalty that you deserve. So that if you believe in Him and trust in Him, you will have eternal life and fellowship with me, the Lord, forever. And so the gospel then is simple enough even that a child can understand it. And at the same time, it is profound because we ask the question, God, why would you save a wretch like me? Amen. Let's pray.